Here another. <laughs> so I was sitting over listening to the music and just contemplating the love of God. I uh, just felt more and more moved that we just need to spend a few moments and just bow our hearts before the Lord and praise His name. Let's let's pray. Loving Father, Father, we just want to tell you tonight, we love you. Lord, we wish we knew of better ways to say it. We love you for Jesus. We love you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We love you because you're our Father, and you will ever be Father. We, throughout all eternity, will call you Abba, Father. Father, we just, we just can't fight, quite fathom the extent you went to to have us, the price your son paid. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, Father, we love you. Lord, we love you with all our hearts. And Father, if all there were left to life here on earth was to love you, that would be more than enough. And so we offer to you tonight our sacrifice of praise. We worship you. We stand against all the powers of darkness. We acknowledge our wholehearted commitment to the Lordship of Christ. Father, thank you for accepting our praise and devotion. And now, Lord, be glorified tonight in whatever way you see fit, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This morning we considered three aspects of the holiness of God. The loftiness of God, the purity of God, and the splendor of God. And these three aspects put together give us somewhat of an appreciation of what God means when he calls himself holy, lofty, pure, and of inexpressible splendor. Now, the marvel of marvels is that the Bible tells us that when we were born again, this kind of God gave birth to us. And though that does not make us gods, he does impart to us something of his nature. And so we read in John chapter 1, But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, the born ones of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. And Jesus Speaking in John chapter 3, says, Whatsoever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatsoever is born of the Spirit is spirit. And when God gave birth to you and me, you and I became functioning, living, spiritual beings. We were born of the Spirit, we're spirit. We're no longer in the flesh, we're in the Spirit. That is the essence of our being. God says so. 
One of the marvels of this identity with Christ in terms of the holiness of God is that God tells us that somewhat of the loftiness of God is that which we partake of too. And I'd like you to turn to several passages. Turn first with me to John chapter 17. An amazing statement. Just amazing. As I was going over this this afternoon, I just struck with it all over again. John chapter 17, verse 14. In fact, what he says, he says twice between verses 14 and 16. John chapter 17, verse 14, Jesus says to his father, Father, I have given them thy word and the world has hated them. And then he says this, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He says the same words again. Father, these people are no more of this world than I am. Now, when you and I stop to contemplate how much Christ was not of this world, it's easy to grasp. He was from God. Touching this planet and going back to God again. A stranger. Jesus looking up to his father. I'm sure anticipating new covenant truth and resurrection life says to his father, these are no more of the world than I am. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I imagine Peter may have had that well in his mind in First Peter chapter 2, where he speaks of the saints and says, you're aliens and strangers here, aliens and strangers. Then that beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Turn there. It's just too good just to hear it. You need to look at it. Philippians chapter 3. He's contrasting the enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And then Paul says in verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. In this context, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. And an ambassador functions when he's away from his home country. That's his job. He represents his home country in a foreign land. He works where he's a stranger. And the moment an ambassador forgets he's a stranger in that foreign land, he's no longer fit to be an ambassador. He loses his purpose for existing the moment he begins to identify with the country in which he is supposed to represent his home country. We're ambassadors for Christ. And to be an ambassador, we must never lose sight of where home is, where citizenship is, where we belong. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. And I assume by heavenly places, he's talking about the whole realm of spiritual reality. Because it's the same realm in in which spiritual warfare takes place, where principalities and powers are. But we're seated with him. That God has transferred us from an in-the-flesh perspective on life to an in-the-spirit perspective on life. And because of that, we are seated with him in spiritual realms, heavenly realms, spiritual places. One of the great tragedies today in Christendom, it affected me for so many years, is that I grew up, and so many grow up, with the concept that being saved is getting something. Period. 
You get forgiveness. You get to go to heaven when you die. You get a God you can pray to. You get a church you can fellowship with, if you can get along with them. You get, you get, you get. And the one thing it seems to me that is so lacking among God's people, and by the way, I don't mean to minimize those things at all. Forgiveness, what a precious, precious thing it is. He's forgiven us all our trespasses, never marked against us. But God has done more than forgive us when you were born again. To be born again means to become something you weren't before. And to me, that's the exciting thing that God's people need to know. That by being regenerated, you not only get something in the sense of forgiveness, but you become someone you never were before. You become a new creation. You become God's workmanship. You become something born of the Spirit that is now spirit rather than flesh. There's so many illustrations going around as to what salvation is. There's one I think I use this in the book. And by the way, a few illustrations I'm going to be using uh, are in the book, too, and therefore... Um, when you find out which ones are, why then only buy the other pages. <laughs> but a very common illustration going around is that, uh, that it's as though we, uh, as, a, as a boy, were standing in a courtroom and we had uh, stolen various things and there was a price to pay and there was the judge. And the judge looks down at us and sees our situation. We indeed are guilty. And then the judge, out of compassion, leaves and walks around and stands by us and says, I will pay all that is due. This person is now my responsibility. Forgiveness. And the judge takes me back into his home. And even provides me with a tutor because I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. And I don't know how to do things like judges' families do things. And so the tutor kind of helps me know how to hold the fork and knife just right. And how to put the napkin in my lap. And how to say yes, ma'am, and so forth. And, of course, the tutor in the story would be the Holy Spirit. We see this truth in that. But God did more than walk down and say, David, I'll pay and take my place and I'm free. He did that indeed. But he did more than that. For the Bible tells us that we are, were risen with Christ. We were crucified with Christ and we are risen with Christ. But God did more than forgive me. He changed my nature. And men and women, you see, if this isn't true, if you died right now, what would go to heaven? There's no room in heaven for forgiven sinners. There's no space in heaven for forgiven sinners at all. The only kind of people that will ever inhabit heaven are those that are saints. Heaven wouldn't be heaven very long if it was a bunch of forgiven sinners up there. No, God performed such a miracle that Paul could say, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, that's a miracle. I was just thinking again this afternoon. By the way, I, I don't have any fantastic outlines, so if you think there is one, please tell me what it is and I'll jot it down. Because <laughs> I don't know. In Ephesians chapter 1, I was thinking of that great prayer of Paul in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, notice that the eyes of your heart, it's not just your brain. Paul isn't saying if you have 140 IQ, you can get this real fast, but if you've got a 70 IQ, it'll take you a long time. It's the eyes of your heart. It's something far deeper than just an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. 
And then he wants us to know the surpassing greatness. What kind of power, Paul? And he goes on and says, the kind of power that is in accordance to the working of the strength of his might. Well, what kind of power is that, Paul? Verse 20, the kind of power that he used to bring about the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That kind of power. And Paul says, I pray that you will know that kind of power in your life. Resurrection power. Power to demonstrate a whole new dimension of life. Power equivalent to the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Little wonder Paul could say with such enthusiasm in Colossians, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Why? Because they're compatible with who you are. You're now in harmony with them. Oh, you still have your unredeemed mortality. And someday, praise God, we'll shed that. But in terms of deepest essence, there is an affinity between me and the loftiness of God. You know, it's, it's such a wonderful thing <laughs> to love God, not from the perspective of seeing myself as a wretched sinner, but to love God from the sense that I belong with him, <laughs> that I'm at home with him, not just forgiven, but one that speaks the same language. What, an, what a miracle, men and women. Excuse me, I... I, I don't know what, I don't want to be overdramatic, but this has touched my heart today. A sense of the wonderment. See, I grew up with this idea, and I, uh, someone, oh, it is here. Well, I'll put this on the overhead. Maybe. Hmm. Virtual gift is not mechanics. <laughs> I grew up with this idea of what it meant to be a Christian. It was pretty much this idea. First of all, let's put me down here as a sinner. And of course, before I knew Christ, I was a sinner. While we were yet sinners. I like the way they sang, you sang that tonight. While we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I'm not saying we don't sin now. I'm not saying anything like that. But what I'm saying is the Bible does not teach that we still are fundamentally sinners. That's the wonder. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. A sinner up here is a holy God. And a holy God, of course, can't look at me without judging me. And therefore, God sent Christ into the world to die on the cross and to rise again. And in a sense, the death and resurrection of Christ. And by the way, there is truth in this. And that's why I don't mean to ridicule what I'm drawing here at all. It's just that not enough is here. As God looks down at me, he sees me through the, the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, up in his eternal bookkeeping was everything against me. And Christ placed that all upon the cross and paid for it. Therefore, that was no longer a factor. And everything right about Christ is registered to me in God's moral bookkeeping. And that's true. All that is right about Christ, God has accounted to me. And therefore, as God looks down at me... As my sins arise, the filter filters them out. And therefore, what God sees is what rises directly from Jesus. And again, I say, there's truth in that. But if that's all God did, then he hasn't changed me. Now, someone would say, well, yes, but he's given you a new nature. So I've got my new nature here. That's my new nature. And so I'm a sinner with a new nature. But God's done more than that. He's given me the Holy Spirit to function in empowering that new nature. 
And therefore, I am a sinner with a new nature who has the Holy Spirit to empower that new nature. And may I say, men and women, that is not what the Bible teaches. I just wish I could underline that. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The miracle in salvation is not only all of this being true, but God changed me way down in the deepest core of my being. And God gave birth to a new creation. And though I still have the same mortality with all the propensities towards sin that my mortality possesses, this deepest self is such that God can look straight down and accepts me in his absolute holiness. And someday, God is going to say, you remember that television program? I don't know whether it's still on... Uh, to tell the truth, now three people, I guess it is still on. To tell the truth, there are three people up there, two are imposters and one is the real person. And finally, at the end of the, the part, they'll say, will a real Mr. Jones please stand up? And everybody waits and wonders which one's going to stand up. And finally, one stands up. Well, you see, one of these days, God is going to say, will the real David Needham please stand up? <laughs> I mean, come up. <laughs> and happily, it's not going to be the flesh that you see. I hope they do a decent job of burial within. And it won't even be the, necess uh, the, the personality factors, because so many of those are so shallow, I could have a brain tumor and change my personality. Now, it'll be something far deeper than that. When God says, David, it's time to come home, as Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And the deepest being that I am goes to be with God and is at home. Men and women, there is a fundamental affinity between a regenerated child of God and the loftiness of God. That first aspect of the holiness of God. Now, one of the biggest problems we face, I face it, you face it, and the people we minister to struggle with it as we do. And that is that we know ourselves to be by what we do. We know ourselves to be because of what we do. The only way I know that I am is by what I do. I think, I feel, I see. And therefore, our concept of ourself develops in terms of our awareness of what we do. Sometimes it develops because of what other people tell us about us. But how do they know? But by their observation of what, what we do. And therefore, it is natural for a human being to try his dead level best by doing things to be somebody. I want to be somebody. How do I be somebody? Well, by doing something. Now, happily, most of us do things that are relatively constructive. And if I'm successful in being somebody, then my self-image grows correspondingly. If I'm a successful businessman, great. If I'm a successful salesman or homemaker or artist, should I say salesperson? <laughs> craftsperson, counselor, whatever. If I do a good job, my self-image is improved to that degree because I know myself by what I do. If I do it great, then I must be pretty great. 
On the other hand, if I fail, if I have taken to myself a business and I know financial collapse, I have a terrible struggle with self-image because I see what I do and I don't like what I see. And I must not be very much. Or if no matter how hard I've tried, my children don't turn out quite right. I have a terrible struggle with self-image. I'm an artist. I'm not, by the way. (laughs) I'm an artist. That's what I do. But nobody buys my paintings. And therefore, I know myself better what I do. To whatever degree what I do is successful, to that degree my image of myself is good. To whatever degree it isn't, of course, it isn't. I think this explains, as I'm sure you're all very well, far better acquainted with than I am, that this is why we have such radical deviant activities among some people. The person that attempted to kill President Reagan, why did he do it? He wanted to be somebody. He wanted this girl to know he was somebody. Well, how could she better know he was somebody than killing the most important person in the country? I'm somebody. I'm sure there are people moving around the world today and they walk into a room with other people and no one sees them. Nobody even knows they're there. They don't say hello. They don't say goodbye. They don't pay any attention to them. And the person begins to wonder, I wonder whether I am. I could die and no one would miss me. And there is this desperate desire in all of us to be something. Otherwise, I know myself by no other means. We catch ourselves uh, in some very foolish expressions of it. Next time you feel really down, just sort of blah. You ladies go out and buy a new dress. Suddenly, you feel kind of good about yourself. Kind of stand in front of the mirror and look. And you suddenly, the whole atmosphere changes. You men, there's nothing quite like buying a new car. And I just settle in, a plush new upholstery. And, and there's your whole sense of yourself, you see, you're doing something. And the more tangible that I do, if I can touch it, if I can sit in it, if I can hold it, if I can look at it, the more tangible it becomes, the more genuine I see myself to be. That, of course, is why it's so difficult, as Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, Lord, I can't see them up there. Well, I need to see something if I'm going to be somebody. And therefore, we have present in the Christian community today concepts of self-worth built primarily on a rather humanistic basis of helping Christian people to develop a good sense of themselves on a flesh-level measurement. I have here a little uh, the cowl. It can peel off the back, which I haven't done. Given to me by a counselor in the Pacific Northwest, and a fairly busy one, Christian counselor. And the title of it is, Your Worth is in Your Design. You are designed in God's image. And then he lists eight things that give you worth. Your ability to feel, your ability to think, your ability to choose, your ability to communicate, your ability to create, your self-awareness, Moral awareness, spiritual awareness. 
That's where worth comes from. And men and women, animals fit most of those things. Animals feel, animals think, animals choose. Animals communicate, maybe not very well, but if they're a little smarter, they do a better job. They may even create somewhat. Have you ever watched an innovative cat try to get a bird? Rather creative sometimes. Spiritual awareness. <laughs> Balaam's ass was more spiritually aware than Balaam was. In other words, whatever information is available causes me to be aware. You see, you see the problem with this. If, if one ministers in counseling and says, here's, here's your friend who has a little self-image, here's how you can get worse. Realize your ability to feel. But all they have are migraine headaches. Your ability to think, they just, just want the civil service exam to work in the post office. Your ability to choose, they never can make up their mind. Ability to communicate, they stutter. Self-awareness. Yeah, but I don't like what I see. Moral awareness. But that makes me feel so guilty. And spiritual awareness. Yes. <laughs> God's holy and I'm a sinner. That's spiritual awareness. I grew up with this. When I was quite young, I trusted Christ as my Savior and I wanted to serve the Lord. Why? Well, not because I loved God so much, because I feared Him and felt guilty more than anything else, but I, I remember going to a camp uh, in Southern California. And at the camp was a fellow with polio. He was in a wheelchair. And every night we went to the campfire and young people would give their testimonies and dedicate their life to Christ. And every time they did that, somehow I couldn't get this fellow with polio off my mind. And I began to think, if I don't go down, God's going to give me polio too. And so I went down and I dedicated my life to Christ. And I was serious. I was serious out of fear of God and a little bit of love. And so off to a Christian college I went and or long before that, I'm passing some of my story. But in high school, I had a terribly low self-image. You know, um, just about everybody I meet says they had a low self-image. Does anybody have a good self-image? <laughs> But I had, a, I had a poor self-image as a junior higher and high schooler because I was, well, I was terribly skinny. I am skinny now. I was skinnier then. And uh, I, I wouldn't ever wear a short sleeve sh uh, shirt to school because it showed those spindly arms and I didn't want anybody to see them. So I wore long sleeve shirts even when it was hot. <laughs> that was dumb. I was nearsighted and I wear contacts now that I have these gold rimmed glasses. And I was terribly awkward. Well, now, what does a boy do in order to identify himself as being somebody if he's awkward, wears ugly glasses, and skinny? I like girls. I wanted them to like me very much. I remember one night at a camp where one girl thought I was special enough that she was willing to let me walk her to the campfire. I'll never forget that walk. I was 14 years old. She was 12. 
Her name is Joyce Ochenbach. <laughs> Speaking of self-image problems, the thing that, I, that really got me the most about her that I really was tantalized by was her long blonde hair. We went to a sort of a camp reunion a few weeks later and she cut her hair off and I, could, I thought, what did I ever see in her? <laughs> My whole self sense of her worth was her long hair. Well, anyway, I felt that night I was somebody because here was a girl that thought I was special. I went away to college. I worked uh, with the American Sunday School Union, the American Missionary Fellowship, every Sunday, almost every Sunday for four years. Little struggling rural Sunday schools. I didn't like to. It was hard work. It was discouraging work. But I wanted to do what God wanted me to do. And I knew I should be busy doing the work of God. Well, by that time, I figured it... Since I dedicated my life to the Lord, I better go to seminary. So off to seminary I went. And apparently I did fairly well in getting grades, and I got through all right. And then I became a minister of youth in a church, and I tried to do the best I could. But all the time, my concept to myself was this forgiven sinner concept. And that went on for years, men and women, until I had been at Multnomah School of the Bible for several years. And I will never forget, I was teaching a Sunday school class, and I had put off for years teaching the book of Romans because I didn't want to teach Romans 6, 7, and 8. It was just to teach it the way I'd been taught it, taught it. In other words, to teach it positionally, that the old man was crucified, that's the way God looks at it, but in terms of actuality, it's still very much alive. I, I couldn't teach it that way. It didn't fit the passage, but I didn't know how to teach it. And therefore, I didn't teach it. So finally, the class asked me again and again over several years, why don't you teach us the book of Romans? And finally, I agreed and said, okay, I will. But I covenanted with God. And I pled with God. I couldn't order him, but I pled with God. God, when I get to Romans 6, please, this time, make it make sense. And I will never forget, as I got to Romans 6, the suspense of the weeks that went by as I got through chapter 1, 2, and 3. And more and more, I thought, but 6 is coming, and Lord, what's going to happen? <laughs> I finally got to Romans 6 and I was referring to John Murray's commentary, which is a classic commentary in, in Romans, one of the great classics of all commentaries in the book of Romans. And, and I was reading along and he was talking about the old man being crucified and he made the statement, this is an actual reality, that if you're born again, you cannot be both old man and new man at the same time. You're either one or the other. And for the first time in my life, I thought, Lord, there's hope. <laughs> Somebody believes this passage is to be taken for what it says. And the more I read, the more the Holy Spirit bore down in my heart. And it dawned on me, David, you are a spiritual being, alive to God. You're not just a forgiven sinner. You're a saint, David. Hold your head high. You're a royal priesthood. David, your destiny is the glory of God. And then I had to wrestle with this thought, well, then I'm somebody. And gradually the Holy Spirit taught, as you get into Romans 8 and on through other portions, that the only being I am is because the life of Christ is flowing into me. For to me, to live is Christ. And therefore, I can never pat myself in the back and say, hey, you did a pretty good job. All I can do is to look to the true source and say, thank you, Lord. Life. I was somehow free. I was free to live. From that point on, doing righteousness was not going against what I wanted to do, what God wanted 
me to do, but to do righteousness was to do what my deepest heart desired to do. Men and women, I believe that God's people today need to realize that when the Bible speaks of them as a holy people, and when Jesus said, they're not of this world, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we're strangers and aliens, we really don't fit down here. We're like scuba divers down in an environment we were never built to function in. We may look like fish, we may swim like fish, we may be fascinated with fish, but we aren't fish. And we survive only because we're joined to the air we breathe, and it's celestial air. We live only because of that. The believer in the loftiness of God The problem with acknowledging this to be true revolves around the fact that, that I can actualize flesh identity by an act of my own will. I can say I'm going to sing, and I open my mouth. Now, nobody else would call it singing. <laughs> But I, 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 I actualize, and I know I'm somebody because I'm hearing it. And therefore, in the flesh, actualization is always a present available reality. Actualization of spiritual personhood is only the prerogative of the Holy Spirit. And I cannot do that by my own will. I, it, it does not initiate a part from my will, but it is not because of my will, it is an action of the Holy Spirit. I will get into that more tomorrow, because the crucial place of the Holy Spirit in this resurrection, new covenant life is so absolutely fundamental. What I'd like to close with tonight, in view of the fact that I am not of this world, that I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places, that I'm part of the family of God, that I'm part of the bride of Christ, and all of these intimate descriptions, vine and branches, underlines one very expressive fact, and that is that the greatest reason God saved us, the greatest reason he saved us, was not to use us, but to have us. That's such a precious thing. Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. And you think of a passage in Revelation chapter 2, where, where God is, uh, is speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he lists all the things they were doing for God. Lots of things they were doing. They were standing against sin. They were, they were teaching proper doctrine. And we all know the criticism of God. You've lost your first love. And the fact that God has caused me to be born again allows me to enter into an intimacy of love with Him that I must fulfill if I'm to fulfill my destiny. And men and women, we need to urge the people of God to consider as highest priority their nourishing of a love relationship with the Savior. 
I don't know anything that has stood out in the ministry of Dr. John Mitchell of Multnomah Moore that has marked that man. I don't know how many times he's come into classes with students. And time and time again, he'll look out at the students with that Scottish brogue, which I wouldn't dare try to imitate. He says, young people, do you love the Savior? He's 87 years of age, and he still says, do you love the Savior? God has built me primarily to be a lover. A lover of Him, and then a lover of His people. But Him always must precede people. I'd like to close with a little illustration. I, I don't know what happened to my notes tonight. When I was about... Uh, Fourteen, our family moved from a more residential area to a very rural area, the town of Vista, California. We had a 300-acre ranch. And one dream that I had wanted to have for a long time was an English setter dog. <laughs> that was my... I, I couldn't have it where we lived because there wasn't enough room for the dog to run, but now we could have uh, this fulfilled. And so I went down with my dad to a place where they sold English centered pups. And I looked through all the litter and I found this one pup that looked just like the right one. And I brought him home and I called him Mike. And uh, I did everything for Mike that little boys should do with their dogs. I fed him and I cared for him. And Mike, uh, Mike barked. He was a good watchdog. He did things that dogs are supposed to do. But the one thing that somehow Mike didn't want to do and that was to love me. Mike didn't have any interest in me or anybody else at all. When I would feed him, I'd put the dish out and Mike wouldn't come wagging his tail and slobbering me with his tongue. Mike would wait until I went inside and then he'd kind of come around the corner of the house, tail between his legs as though he always felt sort of guilty. I hadn't dreamed of a dog like that. I'd look forward to a winter night when... I could invite Mike in and sit by the fireplace and reach down and have his neck bend high and catch him under his neck. And Mike didn't even want to come in. I'd call and call for Mike. And it became more and more a terrible disappointment to me. And then as the time went on, Mike developed some very, very bad habits. We had a chicken uh, yard with a fence around it. And Mike discovered if he ran hard and crashed into one side of the fence, the chicken might go out the far side and Mike would race around and kill it. And uh, my dad tied a dead chicken around his neck after we tried everything else and let the dead chicken rot right underneath his neck. Now, that didn't cure him. And finally, I'll never forget it, but finally, uh, Dad said, Son, you better stay here. You know what we have to do. And I said, Yes, Dad, I know what you have to do. One of the workers on the ranch followed our dog off over the hills. And I heard a gunshot. Mike was dead. I uh, wasn't licked. And I went down to that same English setter shop again. And I looked through another letter of English setters and I found another little pup. And I brought him home and I called him Mike. I was stubborn, I guess. <laughs> and you almost could know the rest of the story. This little pup fulfilled everything a little boy ever dreamed of in a dog. 
I'd be running the tractor and all day long Mike would run circles around as I pulled the disc across the fields and when I'd be irrigating Mike would plop right down smack dab in the middle of the furrow water sloshing around him and Mike was everywhere I was when I would go to school Mike would go down to the bottom of the hill a half mile from the house in the top of the hill and he'd wait Oftentimes he'd wait a good share of the day but it seemed like always when I got home Mike would be somewhere near Went away to college. And I remember those happy times that I'd be coming home. I'd drive up that long circular road up to the house up in the hill and the first person that knew I was there was Mike. He would come lunging around the side of the garage and I'd open the door and Mike would crash into the driver's seat and slaughter me and I loved him and he loved me. He fulfilled everything. I uh, perhaps need to finished the story, went away to seminary, and I, another day, I will not forget, I got a letter from home. It was from my mom. And she said, David, this is an awfully hard letter to write, but we did everything we could, but your dog caught fox fever. The veterinarian said there was no hope. We made him as comfortable as possible. But last night he died. <laughs> Remember, I lay down in that seminary bed and cried and cried. You see, it wasn't what Mike did for me. It was that he loved me. Men and women, I wonder how much we've begun to comprehend how much God desires our affection. And I wonder if a lot of the problems that we struggle with that people that come for counseling could be well answered if they could somehow come to fall in love with the Savior and enter into such an intimacy of devotion and love and fellowship with Him that they can endure the isolation and the rejection and the human failures and the lists of self-image that they don't match up and the low IQ and the low job performance and so many of the things that human beings struggle with because they know they were not built to work in the post office and they were not built to be a businessman and they were not even built to be a housewife. They were built fundamentally by God as a spiritual being to be a lover with God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the miracle of your grace. A miracle equal to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And Father, we thank you that in some way known only within your infinite wisdom, you not only placed our sins, but you placed ourselves as we were without Christ. And you identified that person with Jesus himself, and he died when Jesus died. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the miracle that bridged all time and we entered into eternity and identified to that degree with both Christ's death and his resurrection. Father, thank you that we're alive today. We're risen with Christ. We're aliens and strangers. Oh, Father, we would have you pleased tonight, Lord, with our affection for you. Oh, Father, might we look long enough into your face to see you as you are.
we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.